Um, well, as has been said, we're going to continue on in our series in Joshua, uh, this amazing book of God's Word that we've been seeing so much of His faithfulness to His promise, how His promises are indeed unbreakable. Uh, and this week uh, could be considered to be part two of where we started last week. So we left it at the, the very end of ch- uh, chapter five, uh, where God had been preparing His people to go, is what we had thought about. And so there, we, the, the points last week were seeing that God was preparing his people to go with a reminder of his everlasting promise, with the assurance of his ongoing provision, and by demonstrating his unmatchable power. And another way in which we could see chapter 6 as the second part are joined together as one story of chapter 5 is that those points are exactly the same through this chapter. And so some of you may know, and even as you're flicking to that chapter in your Bibles, it's Joshua chapter 6. If you want to find it on the, the red chair Bibles, it's on page 220. You can see that the, the title that you might see there is the fall of Jericho. This is, this is the walls of Jericho tumbling down. And so this may be a story that's familiar to some of us. Yet one thing that strikes me as we look at this chapter is that the main focus of this chapter, as we've seen time and time again, is not on the historic event itself, but it's on what God teaches his people through that event. So we saw it as the people crossed the River Jordan. We saw it as he provided for them for 40 years in the desert. Before that, we saw it as he led them through the Red Sea, having rescued them from slavery in Egypt. These miraculous things happen, and they indeed show us something of God's unmatchable power, yes, but throughout, and certainly as the people reflect on those events. The emphasis seems to be on what, the, what these events teach us about the faithfulness and the provision and the power of our great God. And so again, we're going to see God's promise, God's provision, and God's power. And not by way of repetition, unnecessary repetition, certainly, but by way of emphasis. So as we read this chapter, yes, incredible things are going to happen to the city of Jericho at the hands of, of God's people. But ultimately, The main actor who we're going to see in this chapter is God once again. It is God who empowers his people. It's God, in fact, who brings the walls down. It's God who tells them where to go and how to do it. This is, again, another account where we see the unbreakable promises of God being worked out through his people. God's promises, God's provision, and God's power. God is always faithful to his promise. God is abundant in his provision. And God is majestic in his power. And so I'd love us to read this chapter. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter, all of chapter 6. And you'll see uh, even in the the chapter divisions in your Bible, some of of them actually have the paragraph starting back in chapter 5, verse 13. This is a continuation of where we left off. But let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1 of Joshua. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came in. No one went out, sorry, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse And the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry the trumpets or carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. 
When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard, rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she had the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. It's a remarkable encounter. Jericho is defeated in, in dramatic and in definitive fashion. It's left as a, as a burning ruins. And, and perhaps as we, as we read through, you could hear those three Ps that we mentioned earlier, the promise, the provision, and the power of God. And these are most clearly seen through the reality that the victory is God's here. Isn't that obvious? The Israelites don't outwit or outmaneuver the Jericho army. No, they, they hear God's plan. They follow God's ways, and so they see God's victory, just as God had planned. And so this is, this is God's victory. This is God's story. This is God's action. However, that doesn't mean the people are some kind of spectators on the sidelines. They're, they're not idle. 
Indeed, they must follow his direction if they're to witness his victory taking place. We've talked about this in previous chapters as we've seen that God is the primary actor at work. Absolutely, yes. But in his sovereign and and merciful way, he includes his people in his actions. And so therefore, they have the opportunity to express dependence and faith and obedience to him. And so David Firth comments along that line that we see the balance that is retained throughout the book between the certainty of God's promises to his people and their need to claim them. We see the certainty of God's promises to his people and their need to claim them. Do you remember we saw that as they were crossing the river? They still had to cross the river. And here we have God has said, I have given you the city, yet they still have to walk around it. They still have to go in and take it. And so, yes, this is absolutely a record of God's miraculous promises, his provision, his power, unquestionably so. But the reality is we see his promises, his provision, his power lived out in the lives of his people. And so this morning, I'd love to frame our thinking around this, this wonderful chapter of God's word by seeing that the promises that God gives fuel action in his people. The provision that he provides fuels trust in his people. And his power that's on display fuels submission from his people. The promises fuel action, his provision fuels trust, and his, his power fuels submission. Firstly, I, I want to think about then the promises and how they fuel action. We see this in how God directs Joshua. As Yahweh speaks to Joshua in verse 2, we see it very clearly. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings, his king and fighting men. So, so that's the first thing Joshua hears. Joshua hears the outcome of what's to happen. God promises what is going to take place. And therefore, he can then listen to the instructions with the assurance of the outcome already secured. And I think given the nature of the instructions, that is good news. If God had started with the instructions of, okay, Joshua, we are gonna, you are going to take the city by walking around it. There's the potential that Joshua might have thought, I'm not sure that's the best plan, God. We could do this differently. We've got an army. We've crossed the, the Jordan ready to fight, and you want us to march? Well, so that, that's, that's my assumption, by the way. I think Joshua would be much more faith-filled than I am. But God graciously grants him the outcome first. See, I have given you the city. So because of what you know is going to definitely happen, then do as I say. And so God gives this wonderful comfort. See, I have given the city. Indeed, the outcome is so certain that God talks about it as if it's already happened. We've seen that before, haven't we, through Joshua? And because God gives such certainty, that means his people can respond with complete obedience. Unquestioningly so. We don't get any sense through this chapter that there was any grumbling of, do you really just want us to walk again? We did this on Tuesday. Are you sure you want to do this again? We don't get any of that. There is full unquestioning obedience because God has promised the outcome and that promise fuels their actions. Indeed, it's why by the time we get to verse 16, when Joshua then gives the command to shout, which must have just been incredible to be there at that time, but he gives the command to shout and then says, for the Lord has given you the city. See, we can go now because God has already promised what's going to happen. And so the actions are fueled by his promises. The actions are fueled by his promises. And surely that is exactly 
the, the same for God's people today, for those of us who know and trust in his good and unchanging and eternal word. His promises are sure. They're, they're not just an option that may take place. No, if God has promised, then we can bank on that outcome. Therefore, our actions can be based on the certainty that he provides. And so there's a challenge for us there, though, isn't there? Do, do our lives reflect that kind of obedience or that kind of trust? If, if someone was to watch my life, would they see that my actions are fueled by God's promises and complete trust therein? See, I think there can sometimes feel like a disconnect between what we know God says, but how we still choose to act. And so we know that God promises his presence with his people, yet sometimes we feel so far from him. We know God's promise to, to love and care for and bestow grace and mercy and forgiveness upon his people, and yet we feel so inadequate and unworthy. We know his plans are ultimately for his glory. That means they are for our eternal good also. And yet we find it hard to obey. We find it hard to trust when things don't seem to be going the way we would want. So what, what is this disconnect? What, what are we to do with that? How are we to grow to allow our actions to be fueled by his promises? Well, well this account seems to be showing that, that the cure for that disconnect is not to doubt the truth of the promise at all. That is the one solid thing in this whole equation. That these truths are to make a difference in our lives and therefore the appropriate response is to know these promises with greater certainty. To know them. So for doubting the presence of God, find in his word the promises he makes that he is always with his people. Meditate on them. Reflect on them. Memorize them. Stick them up in your car windscreen. Not over the windscreen, you know, somewhere in the corner that you can see safely. The, the, the point is not, I don't feel like that promise is true, so the promise must not be true. No, people of God, the promise is true. The problem with our unbelief is our unbelief. And so become convinced of his truth. Know the certainty of the promise and allow that promise to fuel your action. And then as he shows you the next step, take it. Because taking the next step fuels your faith to take the next step, which fuels your faith to take the next step because we see God's promise is true all the time. And so the Israelites in Joshua 6, just as they had done in chapters 3 and 4, they are sure of God's promise and so they act accordingly. They may not know all the answers, and even as we read it, we think God's plans here sound bizarre. But if God has promised it, they will act. And isn't that a wonderful example for us? That we would so deeply know the promises of God through his word that we would live an active, faith-filled life of obedience in response. And so our actions would be fueled by his promises. Secondly, let's consider how God's provision fuels trust. Well, one of the ways we see God providing here is with the plan of what is to happen. We see it from verses 3 to 5. He tells them, you will walk around the city once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. Then shout, the walls will come down. You will go in, take the city. I have given you this city. And just as we mentioned, this might seem like a strange military strategy. But this is exactly what God tells his people to do. And we know that this is God's plan from a couple of different ways. And we know that this is good provision of God in a couple of ways. 
Firstly, we have recorded for us here that God says it. Therefore, it is good. But we know that this is a divine plan and it's hinted to us by the repetition of the, t- of the number of times we see seven mentioned. As, as we've said before, numbers are sometimes used, particularly through the Old Testament, and but not exclusively so, of course, to represent something. And seven is understood to represent that, that sense of perfection or completeness. And I think I counted about 12 occurrences of seven or on the seventh day or the seventh time or with the seven priests carrying seven horns. This is, this is important. It's something we might skip over with our 21st century eyes on. But for the people, this was significant. This was God saying, this is my plan. I am providing the way through. Trust. But the central part of this plan, it also shows us God's provision. I wonder if you noticed just again, as was repeated from when they crossed the Jordan River, the ark of the Lord plays a central role here. In the first 14 verses, I counted nine occurrences where the ark is referenced in some way. The ark is, is central. And why was that important for crossing the river? Well, it was important then because it was the representation of God's presence with his people. And so exactly the same is true now. As God gives them this plan to go and march around the city of Jericho, he promises his presence by putting the ark right at the center of the plan. I don't know how many P's that is, if you can keep up. <laughs> But he promised his presence by putting the ark at the center of his plan. And so God promises his presence. This is how he provides for his people. He was in their midst. This was his battle. And therefore, just like we saw in chapter 5, he is central to his plan among his people. This was not an opportunity for Joshua to display the military prowess of Israel. This was a declaration of the God who is ultimately in control the God who is ultimately powerful, the God who is graciously present with his people. And we know that the people locked up inside Jericho know this too. Do you remember what Rahab had said back in chapter 2, verse 11? They had heard of Yahweh and what Yahweh had done. And she knew that Yahweh was with this army. Yahweh had given his people this land. And so she put her allegiance in Yahweh, her trust fully in Yahweh. The people know This God cannot be messed with. And so the result is for many of Yahweh's enemies is their hearts melt in fear. Their courage fade away because of the presence of Yahweh with his people. And so that exact same fact of his presence with his people, which caused fear in their enemies, should have been exactly the thing that caused great confidence with them. Yahweh is with us. We are on his side. This is his battle, as Romans 8, 31 says. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we will march. So what they knew of God, the fact that he was with them, should have given great confidence as they walked into this plan. That is how God provided for them. He provided for them by being with them. And there was no greater provision that any of us can ask for. And so this plan centered around God's presence with them. And because of that, the people can trust. There are many more ways that the Lord provides for his people that enable them to trust. Um, but we'll move on to consider the, the final point that he had promised. He had promised and that fueled their actions. He had provided and therefore that fueled their trust. And finally, that his power fuels their submission. As we read through this chapter, we may well um, rightly, of course, assume that one of the ways in which God shows his power is through the walls coming down. 
I was struck as I was studying again this week that, that really that, that aspect of what is happening is summed up in three words in verse 20. The walls fell down. Or the ESV has it in five words that um, the wall fell flat. What is it? Sorry, if somebody has it, the walls fell flat down or fell. The walls fell. Um, in, in some ways, that, that's, a, that's a simple statement of fact, isn't it? But what, a, what an enormous display of God's power. That without a weapon or a hand placed on the wall, this fortified city is reduced to ruins. God is, of course, powerful. He has told them exactly in verse 5 that that is how it would be. And then we see it worked out just as he said in verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. It's an incredible, incredible, mind-blowing display of power. And the tension would have been building for six days here. With each lap and each circuit of this city, they would have been wondering, are are we there? Is this the day we shout? And then day seven, Joshua says, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. I would love to have been there. See that happen, to hear the roar. It's certainly a demonstration of power. And it's also an example to us of, of the people submitting to his power, trusting in his power. The Lord said the walls would come down, he will make it happen. But this passage shows us that God's power is not just about that kind of brute strength. It, it is, of course, that our God is almighty. But God's power is also demonstrated with the reality that, that God's power is holy. There, there is a, a, a divine perfection in God's power that sometimes leads us to, to, to feel uncomfortable. See, God is, is powerful, yes, and absolutely. God is holy, yes, and absolutely. Therefore, his power is holy, and his holiness is powerful. As with God, it is not, a cha- not, a, not, a, not a, an occasion of one or the other. It is both and fully. God is powerful, God is holy. So his power is holy, his holiness is powerful. And I think we see this being displayed when we consider some of those sometimes difficult passages that we read. We find them difficult when we think of things being devoted to the Lord. So we see that in verse 20, or verse 17, firstly. Um, you shout for the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. And if you're reading the NIV, um, you can see a footnote there which helps us unpack what that term devoted means. The Hebrew term refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. That's why the ESV has devoted to destruction. Something. Uh, and this does raise big questions for some. Is total destruction necessary, God? Does that not even seem to be at odds with some of the way we see God's character revealed through some other portions of Scripture? These are big questions, and these are questions we're going to encounter again and again as the Israelite army advance through this land. And they leave towns and cities and people destroyed. And so, of course, this makes us uncomfortable as we read it. But that's why it is good for us to consider God's word together. It is why it is good for us to ask these questions. I think one of the things that that I really want to stress is these are big questions, and I understand them. I've asked them this week. 
But please don't allow those questions that we find in God's word to drive us from God's word. See, those questions that we have, we only find the answers here. And so the the response to those questions is to ask them, yes, we have a robust faith. We believe in truth. We shouldn't be scared of questions like this. But at the same time, we find the answers here. God has revealed himself to us here. And so it's why it's good that we can do this together and talk about what this truly means and why we need to recognize the history that has gone before. Because it shows that God is holy, God is powerful, and God ultimately is good. So it's good for us to think about these questions. And first thing, as we try to answer some of these difficulties, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that this is God's work. And because this is God's work, he's demonstrating his holy power. What that means is that we need to recognize the scriptural teaching that God hates sin. And that's relevant because back in Genesis 15, when God is speaking to Abraham about the promise of this land that he was giving to Canaan, that he explained the time frame of how that would work. He let Abraham know your people are going to be slaves for 400 years. Then they will come back and, and inherit this land. And then he says this, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So this is Genesis fifteen sixteen. If you could flick that on, Harry, please. Oh, no, don't worry. Got it. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites is the umbrella term for the people who live in Canaan. And the point is that the holy God is going to judge them for their sin. These, these people are not a good group of people. Um, we, we can see some of the practices that they were involved in in Leviticus 18. They involve things like child sacrifice, bestiality. Uh, these, are, these are not a, a generally nice group of people that God has been unjust upon. No, the, these are a group of people whose sin deserve to be punished. And God gives them 400 years. Gives them that time to, to recognize their sin, to turn to him like Rahab has done. To see, we know from Romans 1, there's enough in the created world for, for all to recognize there's a good God who made this who is righteous and powerful. But they they don't do that. They don't turn to him. And so as David Jackman summarizes, after generations of escalating rebellion and refusal to believe, the judgment of a just creator had irrevocably to fall. And that judgment was coming, therefore. We're now fast forwarding 400 years from Abraham. More than that, sorry. And we're seeing now this judgment being played out. And it's being played out at the hands of God's people. God is using the advancement of his people into this land as a means of his righteous judgment. He explained how it would work in exactly in detail in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. We don't have time to go into those passages now, but I would love for you to come back tonight because we will be looking at some of those. If you can't be here tonight, I'll print out the questions and leave them on the table outside so that you can take them home and study into some of this because this is good for us to see how God is faithful to generations of his people. But Genesis, or Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, he had said, you will go into the land and you must completely destroy. And he gives them, therefore, the reason why total destruction is necessary And it's because God knew that if any trace of that kind of evil was left behind, that it would infiltrate his people. If if any compromise was left, then his people would turn to that sin, the sin that they were supposed to completely eradicate. And so God makes it clear, as he does throughout scripture, that there's to be no compromise when it comes to sin for his people. God's people are to be holy. 
And so for us, we're not to flirt around the edges of sin. Sin is alluring. Sin is powerful. And so it cannot be taken lightly. God knows that. And so he uses language like destroy it. In the New Testament, then we read things like put sin to death, therefore, because God knows that it will eventually ruin us if we let it, if we let ourselves compromise before it. And so God shows his holy power through his people by wiping and wanting to wipe that sin from the earth. Now, just to briefly say, because if you do your scan through Deuteronomy, you'll see that this is not any kind of indication that, that God is saying the Israelite people are perfectly holy. They have a righteousness that they've earned themselves. Therefore, they are justified to enact his judgment. No, in fact, in Deuteronomy 9, he tells them exactly the opposite. It is not because you have a righteousness of your own that you're doing this. God says, I am working out my purposes through you. And so God is fulfilling his promises through his people, even if that was graciously despite his people. The point is that it is God's holy power being demonstrated through God's people. And this was for this occasion. This was for as the people advanced through Canaan. This is not a universal principle that was to apply to all nations around the land of Israel. This was just for this time and God was saying, this is my people demonstrating my holiness. Because as God says through his word, my people are holy people. So because of all of this, Joshua 6 shows us that, that, the power, that, that, sorry, that the people are not to compromise when it comes to submitting to God's holy power. He said that the evil of Jericho should be wiped out and that must happen. And not only that, thing, even the things in the city must be completely destroyed by fire. And the things that can't be destroyed by fire, like the silver and gold and bronze and iron, they're not to be taken by the people because that again would, would defile the people. We'll see that next week. And so they are to be given those things that can't be burned or to be in the Lord's treasury because anyone who has them will be guilty and will be destroyed. We'll see it next week. The point is clear. God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. It is full and final. And his judgment against sin is, is exactly that. And, that. and that can be difficult for us. It's, it's hard for us. We, we, as people, want to be in control of our own lives. We, we want to do what we want to do. Praise God that he knows better. Because my heart will lead me to destruction. His ways are good. And isn't it also such a comfort to us that in the midst of his holy power, we see grace in the example of Rahab here. That Rahab puts her faith and trust in Yahweh, and she is rescued. What a wonderful picture that is for us who, who have come under the saving cloak of Jesus Christ. That it is not my righteousness for which I stand now before the Lord, because if that was the case, I wouldn't be standing. But in Christ, he wipes away my sin. He has dealt with the penalty. So I can now stand forgiven graciously, responding and, and because of his grace. So we need to finish. But this is the God who promises. And these promises fuel the action of his people. And so for us today, recognize his promises. 
know his promises, meditate on his promises, remember them. He, he is the God who saves and saves completely, saves to the uttermost. He is the God who promises the power of his Holy Spirit. He is the God who, who promises plans to prosper us in his kingdom. He is the God who promises his victorious return. He is the God who promises the eternal reward for his people. Know these promises and let them fuel our action. God has promised to his people in Joshua 6 and they act accordingly. God still promises to his people today and our challenge is let's act. It's not even a challenge, it's an invitation to joy. Let's act in response to the promises that he gives. His promises fuel our action. He is the God who provides and that provision fuels our trust. He provides unwavering presence whatever our circumstances. Wasn't it wonderful to hear Elizabeth reading Isaiah 41.10? I am with you, declares the Lord. Whatever you're going through, the Lord is with his people. He provides his people, the church, one another, to love and care for and encourage and support and hold up when you need held up and encourage others when you have the strength to do so. What glorious, gracious provision. He provides spiritual protection in the battles that we face. He's provided. And let that provision Lead us to trust him. He is our good God who knows beginning from end, so let's trust. And finally, he is the God who is powerful. He is the God who has defeated sin, defeated death through the cross of Jesus Christ. He is the God whose power has justly dealt with the eternal punishment for sin. He is the God who has, through his power, shown us resurrection hope. He was powerful then, he's powerful now. He's still at work in his people, transforming them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So yes, we stumble and struggle through this world at times, but our God is powerful. And as Romans tells us, the same Christ that raised him from the dead is at work in those who believe. And so we can submit to his good life-giving power, even if that means laying things down that we long to hold on to in our fleshly selves. We have a God who promises, a God who provides, a God who is powerful. We have a God whose words are unbreakable. This is the God who makes and keeps his promises. We see this gloriously played out for us on the pages of Scripture. If you look around, you will see this gloriously played out still in the lives of his people around you. And if you take time to reflect on your own life, you will see if you know and trust in him. You can see his promise, you can see his provision. You can know his power. And the pr- my prayer for all of us is that we would live a life that reflects hope. We see again God's faithfulness even in Joshua's curse at the very end. Joshua said, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city. First Kings sixteen thirty four. Someone rebuilds this city at the cost of his firstborn son and his youngest son. God's words are unbreakable. God is powerful and in his holiness he is powerful and in his power he is in his holiness he is powerful and in his power he is holy. Let's let's recognize what it means to submit before this holy God. May he be at work in our lives, helping us to put to death the sin that so easily entangles. Ultimately because his life is better for us. He is a good and gracious and merciful God. And so as, as we read these words, as we hear his word, 
May he call us to deeper obedience. And may we submit to his good, loving, caring, holy ways. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that at times to our ears and in our lives, your word is challenging. But thank you, Father, that even when it challenges us, it is because your word is good. It is better. And so we come to you with our questions. We come to you, Father, recognizing that we don't understand it all. And Father, we thank you that that's the case. Thank you that you are way beyond our comprehension. Thank you that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are better. Thank you that your plans are infinitely greater than anything we could try to construct. Lord, we recognize that in your word we see occasions like this where your power seems really obvious to us. As the walls of Jericho come crumbling down, yeah, God, you haven't changed. And so we pray that we would see your power at work in our lives, in the lives of those who, who we love, who don't know you yet, in our nation and in our world. Father, would your power break through? Thank you, Father, that you are holy. Thank you, God, that in your holiness, you have brought salvation to your people who trust in you. And so I pray, Father, that for those of us who have submitted our lives to you, Father, would you help us to know your holiness? Help us, Father, to, to recognize the indwelling of your spirit who, who continues to move in our hearts to, to make sin less attractive, to make your way more glorious. Help us, Father. Thank you, God, that your ways are unending, your promises are true. And Lord, you are always good. Continue to move among us, Father. Receive our humble, weak offerings, we pray. And it's in your holy name we ask. Amen.